Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the violence in Bristol. And you ask us, why has Labour chosen the candidate that it has for the Hartlepool by-election? The protest against the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which we've discussed on this podcast before, which would make it easier for police to shut down non-violent protests, turned violent yesterday evening in Bristol. Police officers were attacked, vehicles were set on fire, and MPs have been roundly condemning the behaviour. Does this make any difference for the way that the bill will play out in politics and in Parliament? Stephen, you wrote about this in Morning Call this morning, so you've been thinking about that. In terms of its passage through Parliament, it makes precisely zero difference, right? Because, like, broadly, we know that most of the measures in the bill are popular. And essentially, right, a good rule of thumb in British politics is almost any question, however repressive, you know, whether it's like, should we lock down for a thousand years until there's like one case of COVID left? And then should we shoot that one person so it can't spread to anyone else? You'd probably get 50% people going, yeah, yeah, sure. 25% of Lib Dem voters would inexplicably agree with it. Um, like, <laughs> so I kind of think that in terms of the raw politics of the bill, it doesn't make any any difference. What, what matters is, is do liberal conservatives who have objections to this bill, are they A, numerous enough, and B, if, well, when you pick up a phone go and you know, call around, you can very easily get 40 names right, enough to overcome the majority. But of course, mm. there's like, do people care enough when they think they might get a job in the next reshuffle or when they think that their mates aren't going to rebel, so what's the point? And I don't think any of that has really changed. I think the one thing which has changed is that it makes the politics of it slightly more tricky for the Labour Party, whereas last week, of course, they could just pivot to going, have you noticed that there's nothing about violence against women and girls in this bill? I think that's really the only difference is what it means for Labour's positioning on the bill as it goes through the House. Alva, what do you think? How is it going to impact our politics? I mean, it's not terribly helpful, I suppose. I mean, we heard from the Bristol mayor this morning making the case that you know, the people who don't agree with the measures included in this bill, which we talked about last week, while you could hear all the protests going on outside about it, you know, this idea that protests can be shut down by the police for causing annoyance, which is a plainly very abstract idea. The people who don't like that haven't really made their case any easier because the case that the Conservatives have made about the need for a bill like this 
is around things that, that we saw with the Extinction Rebellion protests of people sort of gluing themselves to buildings and so on. I think there are questions about whether those things are even currently legal, so whether whether a new piece of legislation is even necessary to deal with that. But basically, it is the more extreme examples of protests, like Extinction Rebellion ones, mm. like things around statues and the BLM protests, and then and then everything that happened in Bristol that makes the case for the Conservatives. So it doesn't help the case that people think that they are fighting for at all, and it slightly obscures the Labour position on this, because I suppose the interesting thing is that when we were talking about it last week, we didn't really touch on how ultimately quite popular this bill would be because we were focused on the scenes that we had seen at the Sarah Everard vigil on Clapham Common and the mood, I suppose, on the left where things are a bit more divided. But yeah, I suppose the the bottom line, which, which isn't really changed by even the scenes at the Sarah Everard vigil, and certainly not by Bristol, is that these kinds of measures are politically quite popular and it's very difficult for Labour to make the case against them, especially in the face of things like we saw in Bristol. Yeah, and it makes it even harder that we're living in a time where protest is banned, isn't it? So every time there is a protest, I feel like you know, whether it's a vigil drawing attention to the issue of women's safety or even, you know, whether it's an anti-lockdown march in central London, you know, which a lot of people don't agree with or, or, or you know, Black Lives Matter protests over the summer and and various other causes where people have broken the, the rules to express their opinion and to protest against whatever policy, you know, is exercising them. I think all of these things are taking place in a sort of very tense environment anyway, in terms of public opinion and in terms of how the police respond and in terms with whether or not politicians are comfortable saying anything about either the protesters' right to protest or the police response because we're operating in this strange legal anomaly where you're not actually allowed to go out and protest. And I think that makes it even more difficult for the Labour Party to oppose a bill like this, for example, and and to defend the right to to free protest, because all of that tying into the coronavirus rules and restrictions and, oh, you know, you should be social distancing, you should be wearing masks, you shouldn't be in public crowds. We're all not used to being in, in very, very packed public spaces anymore and seeing people participate in events like that is It also feels unusual these days. So I think that ties into the public opinion side of it, where these policies are generally tend to be quite popular and that's heightened by the fact that you're not allowed to go out and protest at the moment because of the virus. So I think that kind of adds an extra, you know, it's the Labour Party playing on a difficult level if this was a computer game and this adds a sort of extra obstacle to that, I think. It's an interesting one because, of course, pedantically, the, the right to protest hasn't been taken out of public life. It's just been the onus on whether or not your protest is fine has kind of been handed to the police. So the thing that is, you know, both useful about the present moment, and if I were someone in the business of getting the Labour Party elected, would be deeply troubling me if I worked for Keir Starmer, is that, you know, the current situation, I think, is a pretty good kind of preview of what protest will be like assuming the crime and policing bill passes unamended. Now, I still think that's unlikely because it's not a manifesto commitment. It's the kind of thing the House of Lords hates. Of course, I am an optimist. So I kind of just hope and expect that some of the southern protests won't survive the, the House of Lords and then the Commons will accept those amendments eventually. But what we're seeing now is how protest will be like if it were to pass, right, with this kind of weird situation where where yeah, where the onus is, is, is both on the police to say yes, but also therefore is on protesters to, to kind of prove the point. 
But I think there have been there have been sort of two interesting failures in about this. The first is that the reason why this bill became easier for the Labour Party last week had nothing to do with the Labour Party, and the reason why it has become harder had nothing to do with the Labour Party. And I think up until the point, I know this is literally just repeating what I said about police this week, but up until the point when they have a position on criminal justice, then A, I mean, imagine for a moment you're a backbencher who, you know, you're not necessarily an uber-loyalist, but even if you're like Nadia Whittam, right, or someone who doesn't go out of your way to be deliberately unhelpful, you don't really have a sense of like what the position is beyond kind of generalised toughness. If you are, you know, an outrider, you know, kind of a, you know, opinion columnist who, who wants to sort of like do the sort of like, well, as the leader says, kind of shtick, as we saw under Ed, under Corbyn, on, you know, on the other side for Cameron, for, well, for a lesser extent for May, which of course is one of her problems. What is Labour's policy on criminal justice beyond, oh God, could we please be talking about the economy and the condition of the public realm right now? And I think then what this exposes is they do need to very rapidly move from having a reactive position to a thing that they can go, okay, the Conservatives say this is about X. Well, we say it's about access to justice or it's about funding of this or, you know, really whatever position they want. They just need to, you know, to have one. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Ask Us. So today's question is, if Labour's strategy is to perform a kind of electoral penance to the red wall to show how much it's changed, how does it make sense to put a stop Brexit party elite former MP up for the Hartlepool by-election? So people sometimes ask us if we write these questions ourselves. And I would like to make it very clear that (laughs) this question has not come directly from the screaming subconscious of the politics desk here in Westminster, although <laughs> I feel like it kind of could have. Maybe our screaming subconscious has actually like developed like its own sentience, is, is listening to the podcast and submitting questions. But I actually think, to be honest, this question only even barely scratches the surface of the mystifying nature of this decision, right? Firstly, the argument you could make is, an oh, actually, people will actually see like a, a doctor who works in Hartlepool, who yada, 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 all of that kind of stuff, rather than a former MP who opposed Brexit, mm. right? Okay, yeah, that is possible. But the thing is, is that like the, the mechanics of making this guy the candidate, right, where you essentially kind of go like, we've, we've checked, you don't have a choice is not remotely unusual. The only thing that's unusual is he seems to, he is, you know, he was the choice not only of the Labour establishment here in Westminster, but the Labour establishment in Hartlepool, right? The, you know, then the party exec and the leader of the Labour group have all released statements going, you know, isn't he great? But 
the thing is, is mostly when you do that, you, the candidate needs to be the thing who's the surprise, right? Because that means people stop being like, hey, this person's been imposed. And they start going, oh, what does Zara Sultana think about X? Whereas the problem with doing it with a known quantity is no one goes, oh, right, well, who's this mysterious doctor dude who's been working in Hartlepool during the pandemic? That I was Paul Williams back again. Oh, and I hear you've forced your way through. And it means that I just, I just cannot see how that can ever have been the optimal strategic way of introducing someone. Because I think it seems that there's, there's a really strong argument for in a by-election having someone who is a known quantity, who is not going to, you know, commit news, is not going to have anything. Yeah, essentially, it's the argument for making Robert Jenrick the candidate in Newark in 2014. A lot of Labour people used to joke about how bland he was in that by-election. They used to call him Robert Generic. Well, Robert Generic is a, is a cabinet minister, and none of the people who used to make that joke are even employed by the Labour Party anymore. So, you know. But the thing is, is Paul Williams is not generic. He's someone who has a, a large number of tweets which have been discussed. We'll get onto the back catalogue <laughs> yeah. shortly. Um, he's someone who has uh, explicit political opinions, which have I imagine we'll get onto shortly. Like, so let's let's imagine a situation where whether he wins or loses, we we look at the result from the the metro mayoralty which will be held on the same day. We look at the result from the council elections in Hartlepool, which will be held on the same day, and we go, actually, Paul Williams has outperformed the Labour Party, whether he's won or lost. I still just think it would be utterly bonkers way of, of doing it, just from a sort of party management or political strategy perspective. And it does show that, I mean, just because it's an, an old, as I've written, it's an old Labour problem of all denominations. But you know another old Labour problem of all denominations within the Labour Party? Losing. So I just, I just think, and I mean, I, I don't think that the questions parameters are wrong. I would also ag- agree broadly with that frame. I just think there are just so many, so much to say about this one. Alva, you also have many opinions. Gosh, yes, yeah, so we haven't even touched on on the things that I find particularly interesting about that. So you kind of covered the initial selection and the way that kind of uniquely exposes Keir Starmer in a way that isn't maybe very helpful, as well as the whole fact that Paul Williams as the candidate for Hartlepool is a is a known remainer. And so it's not guaranteed that even though we have got Brexit done famously, that that won't pose some problems. But those, the whole broader thing, as you were saying about there's potentially a case for selecting a former MPE in a by-election where there will be quite a lot of scrutiny more so than just standing as an as a candidate in a general election. There's a case for picking an, a known quantity in terms of, you know, an MP who has, has, has already been elected before. There aren't going to be any sort of nasty surprises. But there have been nasty surprises with the selection of, of Paul Williams as a candidate. So if people haven't been, been following... Some tweets of his from over a decade ago where he sort of said, <laughs> I can see Stephen trying not to laugh. <laughs> but so there's a tweet from about a decade ago where he sort of, he's at an event and he tweets about how they're having a debate about who their favourite Tory MILF is. For listeners who don't know what that means, I think my parents who listen won't know what that means. And I don't um, think you should. <laughs> I think mum and dad, don't worry about Googling that one. <laughs> <laughs> so he tweeted that about a decade ago and that was unearthed within the past few days so that was on I think Friday and he apologized for that and there, there have also been some controversial tweets uh, sort of objectifying a well-known tennis player and some tweets about Saudi Arabia but the MILF one is the one that has really kind of captured the the mood and so there were anonymous briefings to Labour List 
on Friday, I think it was, from a front bencher who was saying that lots of Labour women are quite annoyed about this. And then today and over the weekend, basically, Paul Williams had tweeted a photograph of himself, I think in his in his doctor's gear, but sort of a selfie saying about how he's really pleased to be selected as the candidate. And, you know, he's been working hard as an NHS doctor over the past few days. And it came to light that on the cork board behind him, there's an arrangement of pins that might look to the naked eye like he had spelt out the word MILF behind him. <laughs> but people, that, that tweet is still up so people can look it up and, and make up their own minds. This morning I have been trying to, to gauge the reaction among Labour MPs to this. The official Labour line is that it's just an arrangement of pins and it plainly doesn't spell out that word and it plainly isn't some sort of big joke that he's playing. But I have to say it's it's a tricky one. So on Friday when that front bencher briefed that lots of Labour women were annoyed, I can tell you that lots of Labour women definitely weren't annoyed because any that I spoke to just said that there have been tumbleweeds in the WhatsApp groups. Lots of them didn't know what I was asking them about. Certainly the initial tweets from a decade ago weren't really bothering people, especially since he had apologised. But this one certainly has sparked conversations in the women's PLP WhatsApp group. So some people, you know, have been sort of talking about it being, you know, apparently quite misogynistic and other people saying that it's not really appropriate and that any concerns should be taken up with with him personally. So it has already kind of split along factional lines I think everyone would say that it's sort of people from the left of the party who are particularly annoyed about this and there are suggestions that they're annoyed for other reasons too which comes back to the initial decision about his selection the fact that he was the favorite and there wasn't a long list or a short list with, with more than him on it means that someone like potentially Laura Pidcock who might have stood it didn't have the opportunity to so the objections to the mystery of the pins on the court board have kind of been boiled down to a, fa- a more factional dispute. And the people who know him say that it doesn't tally with what they, they know of him. But certainly no one is sharing the Labour Party's official line on this. Everyone thinks it was either photoshopped, which makes no sense because he posted it himself. Other people think that he, you know, he, someone must have played a prank on him and it's in the background and now he hasn't. And he just didn't realise and now it's too late to apologise. But really no one actually within the PLP disputes that this thing that looks to, to spell MILF behind him actually does spell MILF. Like it's the curious case of, of the cork board. <laughs> you know what this is i know it's horrible if it's like some kind of american pie prank it says such bad things about him or whoever works for him but it it does kind of make you love how unglamorous and just deeply lo-fi british politics is (laughs) you know it is an extension of just people standing in leisure centers looking a bit ill at midnight (laughs) i I think the thing i've just been struggling to keep together is since i was you know the advantage of like (laughs) controlling who the candidate is avoiding any nasty surprise Except the thing is like none of these things are surprise. A tweet from 2011 is many things, but it's not a surprise. Someone's yeah. expressed positions on whether or not we should be in or out of the EU. Not a surprise. <laughs> none of these things are surprises. But the court board, to be fair, very much is a, a new a spanner in the works. <laughs> a new challenge for the leadership. You know, I just think the argument for presenting members with a controlled or managed choice in a by-election, it is quite good. 
because it is a uniquely exposing political moment. It is one where the nature of pretty much, in fact, I don't think there's a single political party which the rules it has for hustings aren't quite badly designed for providing scrutiny. Because, I mean, you can't, to take an example of someone selected in the last parliament, who was then promptly unselected. One of the problems was is that the reasons about this candidate made this candidate unsuitable were known to some members of the CLP. It's just you can't because you're not allowed to ask questions which are specifically targeted to candidates, right? You're not allowed to ask questions like, are you currently in legal dispute with the Shadow Home Secretary for sending them slightly crazy messages? You can't say things like, have you ever suggested that the assassination of a, of a Labour MP may have been a false flag? You can't do any of that stuff in a parliamentary selection because members aren't allowed to ask pointed questions of that type. So there is a strong argument for, you know, a managed choice in a by-election of the kind that the Conservatives did, you know, in Rochester and Strood, where they had Kelly Tollhouse, who's obviously now the MP for Rochester and Strood, had never knowingly done or said anything interesting or controversial before being selected as an MP, and Anna Firth, a seven-oaks councillor who was sort of similarly a clean pair of hands. The thing is, is that if your party machinery can't produce someone who meets all of the following requirements, known to have a clean bill of health to the Labour Party, either local or resident to the constituency they're fighting in the by-election, in possession of a voter-friendly job like, you know, doctor, nurse, RAF reservist, right? If you can't, in a political party of more than 400,000 people, reliably unearth two bland choices for the local party membership to have an up-down vote for, and I think one of the things is very important to remember that although there is a lot that could go wrong in Hartlepool, because Hartlepool politics are a bit weird, and just have been for a very long time because the vaccine bounces hasn't rolled out because it's on the same day as the Tees Valley mayoralty and it could just be that you know a bunch of people vote for Ben Houch and then just vote Conservative all the way down the, the ticket, as it were. I think it's very important to remember that although it's highly possible that the Labour Party will win it just because parties mostly do win by-elections when they are the opposition and it's a thing they hold, then it is just, I think, quite crazy to have a situation where you kind of can't unearth the kind of like, here's someone bland and inoffensive. And no one in this by-election is going to want the like, here's who this fresh face is. Because although, of course, he is a fresh face to the average voter, he is old news in inverted commas in Westminster. And I just think all of that is actually like, does not reflect well on a bringing in of talent. It's obviously been a hobby horse of mine in terms of things the Conservatives do much better than the Labour Party, political strategy, and yeah, you know, just a whole a whole bunch of things. I think it shows a kind of understanding of the argument. Yes, you need to control the process in a by election. Why would you control the process for that outcome? I'm afraid I just I just can't see it. I'm willing to eat crow if, like, on the day he turns out to have done massively better than the Labour Party in Hartlepool or across the region or in similar areas in the local elections. But to be honest, I don't think that I'm going to have to swallow a crow on May the eighth. I think also there is a separate point. I know we were laughing about it, but this whole this whole MILF thing is just tricky for the Labour Party in terms of the week that has been where we've had a quite serious public conversation about taking the full range of misogyny from everyday sexism to violence towards women very, very seriously. And I mean, that was the context in which the initial selection decision was controversial because a man was chosen without a, an extended selection process. And then these comments sort of sit uncomfortably, albeit mainly among women in the PLP to the left who who aren't on the front bench, but also, you know, there's a sort of a sprinkling of of other people who aren't happy at all about it. That's the context in which 
this has happened and and it is a little bit uncomfortable, I think, for the Labour Party or certainly feminists observing it, whether they're in the Labour Party or not, will find it a little bit frustrating. Like it is quite funny and also a little bit of a mystery as to it plainly says what it says behind him. And the way the Labour line is that it doesn't say that is is very baffling. The way it hasn't been taken on is baffling. The way there's no explanation for it is quite baffling. But it's also not terribly nice, I think, in that it is kind of definitionally gaslighting to tell people that they aren't seeing what they can plainly see before them. And there's clearly no appetite among the Labour women, even the people who really stress that they hate this kind of language and also, you know, accept that it does seem to say what it what it seems to have said you know none of them like this kind of language but there's just this feeling that they really want to win in Hartlepool that you know this should be a kind of non-story that he's a good candidate it's great that he's a doctor and they would just rather sort of put it behind them but I think that's that's uncomfortable for people who just find the idea that you would tweet something a decade ago in bad taste and apologize for it which you know is fine but then seemingly make a joke about it in a slightly unusual way I think that sits uncomfortably for people who just think that, you know, regardless of, of your faction or your political party or your or your broader political aims, it's good to be consistent on this kind of thing. Yeah. And also, no matter sort of the extent of the offensiveness or whether you are personally offended by, by it, it is just a drag, isn't it? Particularly if you're a female Labour MP, because you're going to be asked about it and you're going to be you're going to have to be the one to defend, you know, what may turn out to be just, you know, male twattishness, basically. And it's just annoying that you have to do that. It's annoying that your leadership didn't foresee that. It doesn't sort of breed goodwill among um, among MPs and it doesn't really necessarily create the best circumstances for everyone enthusiastically getting behind him. But what I find most interesting about this is one of the things that a lot of people picked up on was the fact that he, you know, he could be accused of being a sort of block Brexit candidate in a place that voted, you know, resoundingly to to leave. But I think really that's a bit of a red herring because I think every single person who's recently been involved in the Labour Party could be framed in that way, couldn't they? Because they probably at some point campaigned on a manifesto that did have a second referendum policy in it somewhere, you know, whichever kind of iteration of of Labour's policy over the past few years would be. So it's quite easy for Conservatives or whichever opposition party to paint any Labour candidate as being, you know, someone who was who was anti-Brexit and wanted to block it and wanted to have a second referendum was and was ignoring the will of the people. So I think that's a bit of a red herring. What's most interesting to me is there's clearly this idea in the Labour Party, and they've used this before in by-elections, that they can steal a march on the Conservatives in terms of the NHS. And obviously, the health service is is such a big priority among voters at the moment because of the context of the pandemic. But it it usually is a very high priority among voters. And it was interesting in Copeland, because I remember when I went there during that by-election, which actually the Conservatives won in 2017, they had a candidate who was a ambulance driver and who they thought, you know, would speak really well for the constituents uh, in the constituency because one of the big issues at the time was the hospital in Copeland. And actually, when I went there, everyone I spoke to, every voter was was saying that that was one of their biggest concerns and it didn't work out. And I wonder how much the pandemic will sort of buffer Labour against that trend, because I, I don't think it will. I think people care about the health service a lot and they respect the people who work in a lot, no matter whether we're in a pandemic or not. Okay, it might be further towards the front of their minds at the moment. 
but it's not I don't necessarily think it's enough you know in Hartlepool there is an issue with with the hospital and how services have been stripped away from it but it's complicated in these places that have for so long been represented by Labour often it's the Labour Party or the Labour Council it's not a Labour Council in Hartlepool anymore but it's often the local politicians who get blamed for things like public services like the local hospital being run down so it's not black and white so I'll be I'll be watching what happens in the by-election with a particular interest in whether this pandemic and the way that it's made us feel about the health service and the way it's brought it to the fore of people's minds actually makes a difference from usual election time when the NHS and your local hospital is still very, very close to your heart and it's very important to you and every single voter's life is touched by it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you vote for the candidate who best represents it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you see the Labour candidate as the one to rescue it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. If you want to ask us a question for the You Ask Us section, then go to youaskus.co.uk and submit one for the next podcast. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.